Politicians in Europe are discovering a formula for gaining power. Preach to the public uh, with fairly catchy, simple slogans that will draw attention to you because you seem to offer a simple solution to what looks like a complicated problem. Coming up, we'll find out what messages Europeans are hearing that bring more votes to the kind of nationalist parties that used to be considered on the fringe. Priority to the French people, and we want to give job to the French people and because the foreigners are, are cutting the line in front of us. Meanwhile, it's been barely 20 years since China opened up to foreign visitors. We'll hear how China's investments in tourism are paying off. It's so sophisticated. The infrastructure is, in many cases, much better than in the United States because it was just built. And where do you really want to go? Learn how to turn your next road trip into a pilgrimage without even having to be religious. It doesn't have to be somber to have meaning. It can be fun. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel in China has skyrocketed ever since the People's Republic established the Golden Week national holidays twice a year. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, journalist Elizabeth Becker tells us what she's learned from analyzing tourism in China, where a rising middle class is spending their money at home and abroad. Lately, an anti-establishment mood is fueling political turmoil all over Europe. Right-wing nationalist parties have been gaining ground with many older voters and complicating the role of the European Union. A little later in the hour, friends from Germany, France, and Italy tell us what they're hearing back home, and they'll explain for us what it means from a European perspective. What's the difference between a vacation and a pilgrimage? Dan Austin found out years ago when he joined his brother and his best friend on a low-to-the-ground cross-country bike trip in search of America's greatest basketball courts. They created a documentary and a book about the trip called True Fans, and Dan later wrote The Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide. It's a light-hearted approach to creating your own low-cost, life-changing adventures. Dan, how did you discover what it takes to be a road trip pilgrim? I, I think it was, you know, it was something that developed really young, you know, wanting to explore, to travel, but also to have a deeper experience with that, you know, with oneself as well as with people you met, with the area, with the landscape. I think the trip that really got it going for me and was a journey across America, a bike trip across America from Venice Beach to Boston. I did with my brother and my best friend back in the 90s. How old were you when you did that? I was 23. And you set out from California on a bicycle. You guys are basketball fans, so you're visiting different courts and stuff. Yeah, we, we, you know, we had the, the Ark of the Covenant, our bike trailer behind my bike, and we had two <laughs> basketballs in the trailer. We had one basketball we played with, and then another basketball, a pristine, never-played-with-NBA basketball that we had signed by folks across America. So you wrote a book about that, True Fans. But I'm holding here a book called The Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide that came after that. People think, you know, your obvious pilgrimages when you, when you go to some great temple or some cathedral or, or some pyramid. What does pilgrimage mean to you? For a long time, the idea of a pilgrimage was kind of ensconced in a, a religiosity, and that's perfectly fine. But I think that there is also this sense of going on a journey to a place that means something special to you that doesn't necessarily have to have any sort of religious overtones. And I think that for me, even though our end destination was the Basketball Hall of Fame, mm -hmm. you know, hardly the Vatican, you know, it's this, this journey that nevertheless was both whimsical, fun, but also very spiritual in yeah. a way, you know, just camping on, on a, a lawn somewhere, on a golf course, just uh, you know, hopping on your bike and, and cruising across the plains and getting lost in those epic fields, you know, there's just something very spiritual about that. And so I, I think that you, you don't have to go on a, 
you know, an old school pilgrimage to have a very spiritual journey. Well, that's what I'm always struck by when we think of the community Santiago is some people are going very old school. Yeah. You see Catholic pilgrims from Lithuania marching through with a crucifix on their shoulders, you know, <laughs> and chanting the whole way. Right. And then you see Buddhists, you see tree huggers, you see skateboarders, and everybody's on a pilgrimage. It's interesting to think that non-spiritual people can have a spiritual experience. For sure. And again, I think it comes down to the idea that however you want to go on that journey, that is great. You know, for us, going across America and having this sort of basketball theme and biking was, was, was great. But somebody else, that may not mean anything to them. And that's perfectly fine. And if you, know, if, if you want to climb Craig Patrick in Ireland in bare feet... Well, that's what you can do if that's what makes sense to you. But I think that for most folks, finding a location and a journey that has special significance and doing it however you want carries with it spirituality. So you've been at this for a while now. When you go on a trip, do you have a pilgrim's perspective kind of goal? I mean, will you go to Hawaii or Baja California without some sort of a highfalutin pilgrims kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, you know. Well, I think there's different degrees. You know, when we biked across America, that was a big trip. You know, we really went after it. We wanted to see our country. We wanted to come back different people. Right. But you can have the same sort of perspective in kind of a, a truncated way, I guess, in a condensed sense, just going out to the grocery store. If you want to just get out and just breathe the air of, you know, you've been inside all day and you just want to walk through the city and just embrace the city, it doesn't have to be some great edict, but it can be this still a very powerful quest just you know, walking down the grocery that's store. that's almost like we've all had friends or a lot of us have friends that have had a terminal illness explained to them and then they've got a few months to live or somebody who thought they were going to die and then they came through it and they have a different outlook. And it seems like it'd be a good idea to get that outlook before you're going to lose your life or before you've almost <laughs> lost it. I mean, it's there. And if, yeah. you, if you travel with that sort of uh, vividness and that awareness and sleep on the top of a mountain, even if you can afford a hotel. Absolutely. And I think the key is that it doesn't have to be somber to have meaning. Right. You know, it can be fun and have meaning. I think sometimes meaningfulness is often linked with, with somberness. So it could with, be a celebration. You it could, could be a celebration. You could find what's the highest altitude pub in North Wales, <laughs> and you could go there and drink that beer. Well, you know, our first bike journey, we rode our bikes to a sports bar in Spokane, Washington. <laughs> and I won't go into the whole story behind that, but it was a sports bar. And yet that journey had a lot of significance yeah. to us. And it, there was spirituality on that journey. It was wonderful. We jumped in creeks and we camped all over the place and we had a great time. Now, a lot of times when you think of pilgrims, you think of pain, self-inflicted suffering. You can walk Croke Patrick. The weather's going to be miserable in Ireland. You can walk up there with shoes on and be miserable. But pilgrims do it, and they've done it for centuries, barefoot. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you so much need to self-inflict pain to have meaning on a journey. I think there is something to be said for, you know, for walking, for riding your bike, for, for doing, doing something it under your own power. Exactly. That's but a big thing, you, yeah. you, know, you have to exert yourself. I think you'll get more out of it if you do that. Um, have I was you ever asked, done anything that was intentionally uh, painful? Well, I mean, I don't think it was pain for the sake of pain. Probably eating the kind of food you cooked on the road was. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, all my life I've looked at pilgrims climbing the holy stairs in Rome, the Scala Santa. On their knees, because that's what pilgrims do. There's two mm-hmm. kinds of tourism in Rome. There's typical tourists, and then there's pilgrims that go there, and they have parallel universes of checklists of things to see. And every pilgrim that goes to Rome wants to climb the holy steps, the mm-hmm. steps that Jesus climbed uh, in the mansion of Pontius Pilate on the day he was condemned, that mm-hmm. Emperor Constantine's mother brought back from her trip to the Holy Land. And tourists always look at these pilgrims climbing the steps on their knees. And I decided last year, I'm going to do that myself. And I picked up the little brochure that explained what you're supposed to meditate <laughs> on with every step, And I've never done anything on my knees like that before. It was so painful. And suddenly all of the painful Christian art all around me 
it was like, I can relate, you know, there's yeah. a, uh, Jesus was on the cross ahead of me and my knees were screaming and I was surrounded by these nuns. It's a different experience. And I would imagine there's a reason pilgrims climb a mountain on bare feet. They, they, they think about every step. I think as well about uh, Mount Kailash in Tibet, you know, the, the Tibetans circumambulating and prostrating themselves the whole way. It takes days and that lends extra meaning. So again, it So comes, don't knock it unless you've hey, tried it. I guess so. I mean, <laughs> what, it's, it's up to the individual. That's the whole key. It's like everybody has a different depiction of what meaning is and what, how that connects with them. And, you know, that's, that's okay. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dan Austin, and, and Dan's written a couple of fascinating books. His book, True Fans, is an account of his bike ride from California all the way to the East Coast, kind of an inspiration for just being on the road. And then he wrote after that a book that gives you all the skills and brainstorms. It's funny, but it's also thought-provoking, The Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide. Dan's website is truefans.com. So what is Pilgrim's Nirvana? You write about that in your book. That's that sense when you're on the road and you suddenly are just swept away in the moment and whenever you are. It can happen anywhere. I remember my friend Clint and I were hitchhiking down the coast of Maine, 2 o'clock in the morning, trying to get to Logan Airport in Boston for an early flight. Didn't think we were going to make it, but nonetheless, we were just walking along. The leaves were kind of going across the road. It was October, and boom, there we were. We were just lost to the road. It was like, wow. Pilgrim's Nirvana. Yeah, we are just lost to the road. It was great. Almost everybody's going to have a chance to travel, but not very many people really break out of that predictable routine where mm-hmm. they where they have that spark. It can be hard, you know. It's it, so much is about, you know, everything being regimented, you know. Uh, yeah. My brother and I were in Vietnam and we we just wanted to get a ride out to Katba and do our mm-hmm. own thing, but we couldn't get out there without being on some sort of tour. Yeah. And you know, tours certainly had their place, but yeah. I think sometimes you're you're kind of pushed toward that and you mm-hmm. really have to make a real effort to kind of break that. One moment. of the best experiences I've ever had on the road was I was up in uh, Chiang Mai in mm-hmm. Thailand and I wanted to get back to Bangkok. And I could have just taken a flight or taken a straight train. And I just, I'm going to go overland. Yeah. And just, you know, hitchhike, get on a little boat, pop in a Dolmush or whatever, or a little minibus. And I tell you, there was more experiences <laughs> on that little ad lib, no, yeah. no guidebook, you know, yeah. nothing, nothing famous. I already saw the famous temples and so on. Not many people just take that step. Dan, talk about some of the classic the sacred places around the world that you might want to travel to. Hot springs, sacred mountains, pyramids, and so on. Oh, wow. Well, you know, obviously there's the go-to places. Angkor Wat is wonderful. I love Angkor Wat. You know, Machu Picchu and Peru. So why would you love Angkor Wat or Machu Picchu? Well, you know, these are sites that have a deep cultural significance to our planet. They're places that are just loaded with history. And those places are great. But I've often found that the greater connection I feel and the greater transcendence that happens on these journeys happens in places that are very unexpected. Mm -hmm. Hot springs are great. I remember there's this hot spring in Iceland, the northern fjords of Iceland, this little town called Taknafjörður. And, um, Say it again. Talk in the fjord there. I practice that. <laughs> <He's>, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> I spent a couple of days with this family in this tiny little fishing village, like 130 people. And they took me to their go-to hot spring on top of this mountain overlooking the fjord. And, you know, it, wow. no, tourists don't go there. Nobody yeah. does. But it's the little hometown hot spring. And that, to me, was just as good, if not better. than. So this is know, outdoors? Totally outdoors overlooking the fjords. It was wonderful. In Iceland? In Iceland, yeah. Like glaciers around you and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That must have been really an amazing scene, a conviviality with nature. And with my friends, and too. With your friends? Yeah, yeah, they didn't even speak English. I've heard Icelanders say that their economic collapse is almost a blessing because now they spend more time in hot springs with each other. <laughs> Just getting it back to basics and a- getting absolutely. simple life and the beautiful things in life like that. Like when I was in Egypt at the pyramids at Giza, you know, they say if you go right to the center of the biggest pyramid, there's a special kind of energy. Mm. So I climbed into the middle of the pyramid and I got right to the middle there and I just, you know, you're just silent and you're just feeling, okay, do I feel anything? And 
I really didn't. But, but. <laughs> well, I think we, we load these places with expectations where we expect just, you know, to get there and, you know, boom. And I, I think there is definitely some energy in these places. A lot of these sacred sites, like Chart, for instance, was a, a forest sacred to the Druids before it was a, a cathedral. So there's definitely something to these sites. But yeah. I, I do think that we bring a lot of it with us and that any place we go can possibly become sacred, maybe not to everyone, right. but to us. And that's what really counts. On the other hand, you can find yourself, if you're open to it, just hiking on the beach, looking at the stars reflecting in the surf. You know, I I think those things are a gift. I think that if you look for it, if you expect it, it probably won't come. It's like love, you know? You kind of like have to ease back and just sort of let the universe take its own course and good things come to you. Can't force it. Let the magic happen. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. We have links to Dan Austin's website, including his charitable 88 Bikes Foundation, in this week's show details at ricksteves.com radio. You can also send us a short note about a place or a theme in your travels that has taken on a special meaning for you. We'd love to hear from you by email. Our address is radio at ricksteves.com. We'll examine the role national identity has been playing in stirring up the politics of Europe in just a bit. But first, Elizabeth Becker explains how the recent growth of the middle class in China has changed overseas tourism all around the world. Thanks for coming along with us today. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It hasn't taken long for China to leap to the head of the line as one of the world's top travel destinations. And with the rising incomes of a flourishing middle class in the People's Republic, today you'll find tourists from China nearly everywhere. Journalist Elizabeth Becker spent years studying the business models behind the world's booming travel industry in Asia and around the world. She's written Overbooked to examine the issues of local and global tourism, an industry that today employs one out of every 11 people. Elizabeth, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you for inviting me. So just how big is tourism these days in China and then China outgoing to the rest of the world? The biggest jump in the last few years is Chinese going outside to the world. They are now the biggest source of foreign travel in the whole world, which is astonishing because they did not start traveling until 1995, and that was to a few restricted countries. So it's astonishing what's happened. Well, it's this whole idea of the emerging middle class. Suddenly, Mm -hmm. you may still have 800 million desperately poor people upon which the uh, Chinese economy is built, but there's 100 million people that are in this new professional class, this urban class, this middle class, and they've dreamed about going, and now they not only have the freedom, but they've got the money to do it. Now, at the same time, I understand more people than ever are going to China. How has that changed? That was the initial goal. And if I can backstep a couple points, when China opened up in 1979, 1980, literally to the world, the leader was Deng Xiaoping. And he made a series of speeches saying to the party, they're private, I uncovered them when I was doing my research, saying that he thought travel and tourism, the industry, would be important for China, inside China, first of all, to earn money and to change China's image. He saw it as a huge diplomatic and economic move, and he was the one who pushed to open up the country. When they started this, there were literally only 500 hotel rooms Mm. in all of Beijing for foreigners. Now, 
500 hotels are being built around the country almost monthly. And each one of those probably has 500 rooms. (laughs) Amazing. It's astonishing. I was so excited to read this because he saw ahead not only the pluses, but he saw the minuses. He said he's also worried that as China industrializes that there might be some environmental problems Mm. (laughs) and there might be some air pollution and water pollution. And he said, we've really got to try to stop that. But he saw travel and tourism as the 21st century industry. It's astonishing. So is he seeing that as something that's healthy for his society to engage with the world, or is he just seeing it as a source of, of hard foreign currency? He was uh, poetic about it. He said that it would be wonderful because the world doesn't understand how beautiful China is, that he wanted foreigners to come and see that this is a rich, ancient culture of beautiful things. And he wanted his own people to see that in the world, that this is a large world and the Chinese have a real role in it. So hmm. this was big. I mean, this is more this than just, uh, you know, goosing an more. industry for money. Absolutely. Eventually, in the goal of promoting foreigners to come and Chinese to leave, he did what many other governments did. The Chinese instituted mandated vacations, and they called them golden weeks. So that would be at the Chinese New Year, the Lunar Mm. New Year, and then the autumn holidays. And that would be three weeks. And first of all, the Chinese traveled within their country, and then once they learned how to be tourists within China— they started to have access to some foreign countries, first Hong Kong, then Australia and New Zealand. I will add that not only are there the 100 million middle class, there's some incredibly wealthy Chinese. And they are the ones that are being sought after in Europe in particular, but also the United States. They spend so much money that they can be the equivalent of a whole economic development program if they decide they fall in love with you. And as soon as the Chinese started to open up, the Europeans commissioned a UN group, the United Nations World Tourism Organization, commissioned them to do a study for them. Who are the Chinese? What do they like to do? What do they like to eat? How should we prepare for them? And it's fascinating reading. Mm. They don't particularly like foreign cuisines. So, for instance, the French, instead of trying to have them eat croissant and coffee for breakfast— they learned how to make Chinese soup for breakfast. You know, just for the first time in my experience in Europe, I see signs with three languages on them, the local Mm -hmm. language, English, and now Chinese. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing they did. They found every Sino-French citizen they could find to help with interpreters, and they Mm. put them in the major department stores, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. They also discovered that the Chinese like to go to an artist's home more than a museum, Mm -hmm. and that they don't like to spend money on lodging, So they want to be in the least expensive hotel in the suburbs, and you'll see that all over Europe and in the United States. And they will spend their money on the labeled Mm -hmm. luxury goods. And you see that in the shops, though, where the the Chinese will go right for the big name. And casinos. And casinos. Elizabeth Becker is our guest today on Travel with Rick Steves as we explore the mushrooming growth of travel to and from China. As a longtime international correspondent in the U.S., Asia, and Europe, Elizabeth examines the trends underlying the booming global travel industry. She details her findings in the latest update of her book, Overbooked. Her website is elizabethbecker.com. Elizabeth, this is so interesting to me because we've got this aggressive, big business approach to tourism, but China is still communist. How does this fit with their communist ideology? Good question. I had to peel a couple of layers, but one of the things is that all travel tour guides have to pass the government test. 
And that government test is make sure you follow the propaganda line. It looks like there are 6,000 different tour guide options. They've all passed the same test, and you'll hear the same thing. You have to go to a real small private one to find a real thing. So you can just assume if you have a licensed guide, it's going to be a guide that may be free-spirited deep down inside, but if they want to keep their job, they're going to spew the party line as they take you around. But just the whole idea of... You know, entrepreneurship and little businesses and making money, is it is it wide open now or is there still a blanket on everything because it is, quote, communist? It's wider open than you would expect. That's one of the reasons you have so many international hotels there. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons you have so many luxury goods in food, wine, clothing, shoes. They're all going there. It's totally possible. It also means that you're paying people off. Mm-hmm. You're going to get quotes license. In order to do that, you're going to be paying people off, and somebody's going to have to be your partner, and so on. So, so there's all kinds of those little things that you find in all of Asia, whether it's communist or not. But, I and must it's say. a society that's embracing conspicuous consumption, which is sort of like Very the, much. the total anathema of communism, and they're they're profiting on it right there in in all of their cities. So. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the government's beyond that, and this just kind of going with this big opportunity to develop their economy with the help of tourism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Disneyland in Shanghai. There you go. Just outside of Shanghai. Yeah. It's all there. And as long as the Communist Party is in power, they've joined the world economy, as they are, will tell are, you. Is the government, Elizabeth, as far as you know, concerned about people going abroad and then coming home with new corrosive ideas about democracy and pluralism and everything? Or in the age of the Internet, maybe that's just not an issue anymore. It's much more the latter, that when they go overseas, I think that it's less the tourist that's coming back with the different ideas than it is the student. But I still think that, going back to other ideas, that even if the Chinese traveler only spends a few weeks in Europe or a few weeks in in Africa or South America, the United States, they'll come back with different ideas. Whether that's going to upset Immediately, the politics, I couldn't say, but it does shape a larger Chinese view. And you see that, I think, played out in those Internet issues you just talked about, that people will come back and they will have a different idea. So It's hard to keep that down. It's it's a rising tide of connectivity and there's no way (laughs) to do it. I mean, way, way back in the old days... In the Soviet Union and and during uh, the darkest days of communism in China, I I think everybody who owned a typewriter had to have it uh, registered with the government. And obviously you can't control things now like you could in the old days. I always have this image of China just with brute force and piles of almost free labor being able to shape its image. If President Nixon was visiting and it snowed, they could just have everybody get out and get rid of all the snow. Even today, the government seems to know how to keep these images controlled. I mean, they, they're still dealing with the Tiananmen Square images. They've still got this uh, Tibetan challenge within their country. How are they dealing with these images and how effective are they in shaping the world's image through tourism? They still can take advantage of old ideas about China. No matter how much we all read in the newspapers, we still carry the images of China when people were starving, everybody was wearing their Mao suits. So when the traveler comes to China the first time, they are blown away. It's so sophisticated. The infrastructure is, in many cases, much better than in the United States because it was just built. The rapid train system. Mm. So they're able to say, see, your images are wrong. We are very modern. We're forward looking. Mm -hmm. We are ahead of the curve. Look at how our people speak many languages. You only speak one. 
so on mm. and so forth. So it's a very different way to look at it. The one thing that I found a little disconnected for me was that they always talk about their rich ancient culture, but I found they have a horrible sense of preservation. Mm. They have allowed so much to be torn down. Mm -hmm. And in their place, they've either built modern mm. buildings that have nothing to do with China, or they have built this faux ancient China. Mm. The only reason, and I've asked around and around and around, and people said, well, one of the big problems is that the way you make the most money is if you tear down the building and build a new one. I experienced that in Beijing. It was just heartbreaking because I know it was mm -hmm. a, a rich history, mm. but there was very little left, and, and they were throwing up the equivalent of a skyscraper a day as there was building mm -hmm. projects just burying all of that heritage. Uh, mm -hmm. I know for a lot of big U.S. hotel chains, the mantra is China, China, China. I mean, they're huge investments in China, and uh, I guess they're gearing up because you mentioned in your book China's on track to surpass France as the most visited country in the world in the next couple mm -hmm. of years. And this is not forward thinking because you are losing more than you gain. Mm -hmm. And people are searching out this one travel agency that I spotlighted called Wild China that's run by a Chinese woman from Yunnan who is um, Harvard educated. She understands the role of preservation and she has figured out how to take the sophisticated traveler to the places that haven't been torn down. And mm. it's extraordinary. But you have to find someone like that because mm -hmm. so much of it looks like anywhere, anytime, anyplace. How's the government doing and just um, capitalizing on what everybody loves about China? Panda bears, I mean, that must be a, a huge opportunity, but a kind of a burden at the same time because people want to go and see panda bears. It's better than I expected because I think we've all seen pictures of the crowds of um, mostly Chinese, but also foreigners going to Zhengdong and seeing the great parks with pandas. And after some pretty bad first steps, that kind of interest has been translated into more conservation so that pandas are now the one thing that can help keep something of China preserved in the wildlife. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about China and tourism with Elizabeth Becker. Her book is called Overbooked, The Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. You know, I remember in France, uh, the country actually had an initiative to smile and, and be more welcoming, and they succeeded. And I think they, to mm -hmm. a great extent, overcame their uh, grumpy image. Uh, mm -hmm. China has some cultural baggage or some cultural heritage realities. They don't say thank you and please quite like we do. Uh, mm -hmm. Are they addressing this? Is, is that a, a hurdle for them mm -hmm. and as they try to uh, consolidate this uh, interest in China and turn it into good business? Mm -hmm. And you see that both inside and outside China. Inside China, the major thrust to introduce this idea of more hospitality, more manners, is largely foreign. What is the Chinese sort of norm when it comes to uh, have a nice day and the consumer and, and the customer's king and uh, you know bonjour? They used to have pre-revolutionary times in the earliest 18th century, 19th century, before um, colonialization and before the big rupture. China was famous for exquisite hospitality, mm. exquisite cuisine. Oh, so the, this is a fallout of the whole uh, Mao period. Well, it's modernization. So you have the Europeans coming in and the big battle over who controls China. Then you have the Second World War, all of that. So you mm -hmm. have the 20th century was the big rupture. And now, can they ever go back and find that culture? So interestingly... Some of the best teachers are Chinese from overseas, so people from Singapore, people okay. from Taiwan, and they are coming, enriching the language and teaching in a Chinese way 
how to reimagine and recover mm. what was exquisite Chinese hospitality. Isn't that interesting that Chinese expats could come back and help them uh, gear mm. up for international mm. tourism? This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Elizabeth Becker. Her book is Overbooked. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Julia in Freiburg, Switzerland, has sent us an email. And she writes, I'm living in Switzerland with my family for a year, traveling a lot around Europe, and the rise of Chinese tourism is very apparent, mostly in the form of massive bus tours. She says, my theory is that they're like the American tourists of the 1970s and the Japanese tourists in the 1980s, and that as time goes on, they'll become more sophisticated and independent-minded travelers. However, knowing the context, communist and more community-minded China, where I've traveled four times, perhaps not. So the question is, okay, right now you got massive bus tours and everybody just following the umbrella of their tour guide and taking pictures upon command. And over time, the Chinese will gain a little more independence and, uh, and sophistication in their ability to appreciate European culture. What do you make of that, Elizabeth? Huh. It's a nice theory. I can't predict the future. I just know that there's been special problems with the Chinese. And it hasn't been quite as apparent in Europe, but it's been much more apparent in Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia is like the Hawaii for China, and you find them all over the beaches from Vietnam to Cambodia to Thailand. The problem there has been lack of respect for local culture. Mm -hmm. So badly, if you want to see it, just go on a, a, any kind of YouTube and look at Chinese travelers behaving badly, mm. and you'll see all kinds of real serious cultural problems. To the extent that now the Chinese government has the equivalent of a no-fly list for Chinese tourists who've been caught doing really horrible things overseas and they're not allowed to travel for the at least Chinese a year. government itself mm -hmm. is barring yep. rude Chinese from traveling anymore. Yep. Wow. Yep, yep, yep. Well, I think that's part of just this uh, they're new at the world and I know mm -hmm. Americans used to be almost comedically ethnocentric and uh, then over time we get a little better understanding that we don't set the standards on this planet for anybody who knows what's going on we're we're just part of it and and, uh, and when you come from a big country, it's easy to think that you are the norm when you get to venture out of it for your first time. And I suppose the Chinese are doing that. What I find in Europe is huge numbers of Chinese travelers, they've got as sophisticated understanding of what Europe has to offer as I would have if I went to China. I'd want to see panda bears and I'd want to go to the Great Wall. I would suppose every Chinese person going to Europe would be about as clever at that and they'd want to see the Eiffel Tower and they'd want to see the Botticelli's and Mona Lisa and they'd want to see the Leaning Tower and they'd want to see the Vatican and consequently you know, Versailles and Frank's house. Those 10 top sites that people would know in China are the ones that all these Chinese mass groups are hell-bent on seeing. And boy, you notice that when you try to line up to see Anne Frank these days. Mm -hmm. They may not notice that there's some very sophisticated Chinese who are in Bordeaux tasting the wine or that mm -hmm. they're very sophisticated Chinese in, in Scotland. They're the same mix as there was with the Americans. Mm -hmm. The one thing that's not to the Chinese advantage is that there's so many of them, and there's so many other tourists. Mm -hmm. So that when Americans were behaving strangely or badly, we weren't so many, and there wasn't so, hmm. so many travelers. Right. Now the spotlight is on them. Interesting. There's not a lot of room for maneuver, and everybody has an iPhone that can take that little yeah. video and put it up on that website. So it's not easy. It's not easy to be a Chinese tourist. And the point is, these days, the government in China is happy to give a Chinese person a passport. And if they mm -hmm. work hard and have the money, the world is their oyster. Right. All and right. we're not going to stop that. Well, that's, uh, this is part of the excitement of living in the 21st century. <laughs> and Elizabeth yeah. Becker, thanks for studying all of this. 
in your fascinating book called Overbooked, The Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. Thanks again, Elizabeth, and happy travels. Thank you. Coming up, we'll look at the political scene in Europe, where right-wing parties and personalities are bringing new challenges to the European Union. It's an insider's perspective from France, Germany, and Italy, next on Travel with Rick Steves. While Americans have been preoccupied with our own big political changes, the conversations happening all over Europe are also quite intense. We know that Britain's conservative government is spearheading a divorce from the European Union. But news about the new right-wing governments in Poland and Hungary don't often make headlines across the pond. France has also moved to the right, and it's seen recent gains recently in support for the far-right National Front Party, which for decades has staunchly opposed both immigration and membership in the EU. In 2011, Marine Le Pen took over leadership of this controversial party from her father and party founder, Jean-Marie. The younger Le Pen has been busy softening the party's alarmist tone, which might spell success for its right-wing nationalist agenda in upcoming elections. In Germany, the current wave of refugees from the Middle East and Africa is putting serious pressure on the government of Angela Merkel. And there's even more tumult in Italy, where only a few of its prime ministers since the 1960s have managed to serve for more than two or three years. Patrick Vidal is a lifelong citizen of France. He's been living in Brittany now for more than 15 years. Nina Bernardo was raised in Ohio, but returned to her parents' home country of Italy 20 years ago and stayed. Nina now lives in Rome. And Fabian Reuger was born and raised in West Germany and has lived for years in Berlin. As tour guides, they each specialize in showing the best of their countries to American travelers. And they're here now to help us understand their societies on their own terms. Nina, Patrick, Fabian, thanks for being here. Bonjour. Rick. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having us. As we find ourselves in 2017, and we have a new president, and uh, Britain has voted to leave the European Union, and there's similar rumblings politically all across Europe. So let's do a quick review. We know we have President Trump. We know the British have voted to leave the European Union, and by all uh, accounts, it sounds like it's going to be a hard exit. It's just Britain, you're out. Okay. That leaves the European Union still. 400 million people or something like this. What are the rumblings? What's going on in other countries that would relate to what we're experiencing in Britain and the United States? Nina, how about Italy? What's what's the feeling? Well, Italy's in a bit of a political mess right now just because the Renzi government, he basically resigned as prime minister. But I don't necessarily tie that to the rising tide of nationalism in Europe. They tried to pass a referendum in December that was going to alter one-third of the articles of their constitution, and he attached that referendum to his popularity, which was a huge mistake on his part, very strategic mistake, and basically promised to resign if it didn't pass months before the referendum happened. There he was, was the great new hope in Italy. He was the pretty boy from Florence, he the fashion, wonder kid. He fashioned himself as the wonder mm-hmm. kid, very much a cult of personality, mm-hmm. uh, in a similar way to the way Berlusconi fashioned himself mm. uh, around this kind of cult of personality. I'm coming in to break the system and make everything new again. Would he be considered uh, sort of left-wing or right-wing? He's center. And uh, Patrick, uh, France has got Marine Le Pen in the news. Marine Le Pen, yeah, who's the daughter of uh, Monsieur Le Pen, and uh, he's been around for since the 1980s. He was pretty fringy, wasn't he? Like far right, anti-Semitic, and no apologies. Exactly, yeah, he was. He was very, very far gone on the and very extreme on his ideas of, of getting rid of the uh, immigrants and all, all that kind of things. And uh, she's um, since she took power, something like seven, eight years ago. She's really kind of. Uh, 
cut the edge of the of the party, make it a little a bit more. So it's, it's the same party as it's the same party. party. It's the same ideas. It's the same. They, they want the same thing, but she made it a little bit more polite, uh, palatable. Yes, absolutely. But with the same base, with the same with the same supporting. base, with the same idea. I mean, the, so uh, more electable. More electable, yeah, but with the same idea. The the, the motto of, of Trump would, wouldn't be very far from their motto, which is which is priority to the French people, and uh, we want uh, we want to give job to the French people, and because the uh, the foreigners are, are are cutting the line in front of us, it's a lot about the fear of the foreigners coming in, the the immigrants, the refugees after the the wars in Syria, and all that kind of economic problems that that make people kind of unsure about their future and scared about anything else coming from outside of the country. Open borders sounds nice, but there's a lot of people rattling around that go over the borders that then people deal with, and for some people it's a threat, and for some people it, it spices up the society. Yeah, it just makes the fear for a lot of people, make, makes some, a lot of people being scared about their future, about the future of their kids, about their employment. But I think if there had been a real institutional, EU institutional response to the crisis before right. it got out of hand, then there wouldn't be all this disconnect. The European Union seems to be constructed in a way where it just doesn't take definitive action and there's a power vacuum and it's supposed to be a great you know, they did union, a lot of meeting it. and then let's meet in two months to address the emergency and then why don't we meet in two more months to do that meanwhile the refugees are coming and people are getting scared and somebody's going to step into that power vacuum fabian from germany how do you define populism is that something that is a sort of a constant factor here populism Populism, I think, has been in the post-World War II democracies in Europe the whole time. It's just sometimes less successful, and sometimes it finds spots where it can be very successful. What is it? I mean, can you just define and it for me, you, populism? You, you uh, preach to the public uh, with fairly catchy, simple slogans that will draw attention to you because you seem to offer a simple solution to what looks like a complicated problem. What are some examples of a populist slogan that we may have heard of in the past? Oh, well, let's get the foreigners out, then we all have jobs. That will be a very simple uh, slogan. We've heard that, for instance, in the German right-wing populist movements, Ausländer raus, foreigners out, which is a very simple xenophobic slogan that seems to offer some kind of solution, like, for instance, claiming that the European Union uh, gets 50 million pounds every day from your country and uh, that that is money better spent in your healthcare system. That was a slogan, a populist slogan that really bolstered the vote in Britain for in Britain to vote to leave yeah. the European Union. This that sounds like make, a lot of money. That's a lot of money every day. Hell no. Let's get out of here. I think it was 50 million a week, or Something but it doesn't like matter. That. The yeah. truth is, within a week after Brexit, the United Kingdom Independence Party and the proponents of Brexit admitted that this number was completely made up. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about nationalism, populism, and the European Union. We're joined by Fabian Reuger from Germany, Nina Bernardo from Italy, and Patrick Vidal from France. Nina, when you think about uh, the challenges that the electorate has, what comes to mind in, for people in, generally in Europe? I, I think people generally feel so overwhelmed by really complex problems like a refugee crisis or something like that. They don't know where to turn for solutions. And I think it's a challenge for the left to try to present a problem and a solution, not in simplistic terms, but so that a population can follow a problem and a solution. Otherwise, they're obviously going to be drawn to, oh, well, let's just get the foreigners out. With Trump and Clinton, Clinton was a policy wonk, and she would talk about things in complex terms. And she may have been right or she may have been wrong, but she would talk about it in ways that a lot of people just didn't have the patience to think about. Whereas a populist, I think you could call Trump a populist, he would give very simple slogans that people could go, amen. 
or no way, but one or the other, people could understand that. Are you? Are you I, I, this I think. I think. I think that's exactly what I'm. What I'm trying to say. I agree, and I think that is a challenge. Then for I think this is a wake up call in the U.S., but in many places in Europe, to try to for, okay. refashion a message. So the right wing is better at keeping it simple, and the left wing, if they want to. And I'm not. Back, I'm not implying they should dumb it down at all. Well, this. But we have to break through if we want to but reach the need, electorate, whether you're on the right or the left. You, you a focused to, message. A focused message. A, a message that doesn't bog down. It's, it is a complicated world. That's the reality. So either you can, you can smart up your electorate and you can deal with these issues, or you can dumb down your electorate and dumb down all of your talking points. It's, a, it's a quite a big challenge on both sides of the Atlantic. So we've talked about Britain and France and Italy and Germany. What about other countries? What else is happening? Is this sweeping Europe, or is, just, is this a few isolated countries that are having but this? It's, uh, I mean, in Greece, there's a right, uh, left-wing party which uh, took the power a couple of years ago. In Spain, the uh, left-wing party has been very powerful as well, but they're all on the edge. They're all very, very close on the edge, and, and the extreme right-wing are there. The populist party are there as well, ready to, ready to take over, because we get to the same thing. And I think there's another level of that, is the media pressure of the people. I mean, crises of, of refugees or immigrants, we had them very often all over our countries. Uh, terrorist attacks and bombing, we have them all over the place. I mean, in the 1980s, we had more bombing and terrorist attack in Paris than we had the last couple of years. But you didn't have the media. But we didn't have the coverage of the media that we've got nowadays, which makes every little event like, like boom, bump up. And, this and is amazing so to me. If you look at the bar charts and the statistics, there were more killings on the streets of Europe by terrorists in the 80s and the 90s than there are now. But today, with the media, people flip out. Yeah, there's a panic, there's a fear, which is, which is kind of building up and which is pushing people towards those simple solutions. Are you talking about a weakness in the center and more extreme politics on the left and the I right? It looks like, to me, it looks like uh, most of our countries are, are, are getting there, and a kind of uh, extreme movement that... Uh, either left or right. Either le- left or right, yeah. It's a little bit like Clinton and Trump. I mean, Clinton has, uh, has been part of his establishment. I've been there for so long with the, the different... The status quo. It's, yeah. it's frustrating me. Let's try something different. Nina and Fabian, uh, Patrick mentioned Spain. What other countries are having uh, tumultuous political times now? I would dare say you would have to ask it the other way around. Which country does not have a populist movement right now in Europe? Is that, that right? That is somehow trying to gain political profit from what is a widespread... Uh, anti-establishment mood. Because I understand in Eastern Europe, in Czech Republic and in uh, Hungary and in Poland, there's a rise of populist nationalist right-wing parties. Is that true? Germany has that. Uh, Denmark, Sweden, they have their own populist parties who become uh, fairly successful. And the question is always, how does the public react to the rise of these new parties? France, for instance, has always had its right-wing Le Pen group, but now it is becoming viable. It could actually take power. So we've had these uh, right-wing nationalist uh, populist groups waiting. Now are they actually on the verge of taking power in any countries? That's where the individual constitutions in Europe come in. It, that would be very difficult in Germany because the populist parties would have to find coalition partners. Mm. All other political parties in Germany have basically declared that they will be against them as their highest priority and would rather form a coalition with somebody else. So we might see the absurdity in Germany, for instance, after the September elections, that will have a Conservative Party, Labour Party, Green Party coalition uh, that is thoroughly possible and would have a large majority in Parliament. Just to unite against the rise Just of the populist party. Just to unite the rise of these new parties. Does this harken back to the 1930s in any ways? Is there, is there a sense of that in, in Europe? I think history 
never completely repeats itself, but it sometimes rhymes. And that means there are aspects of what we see today that are reminiscent of the 1920s, but it's still different. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is very clearly different is who is voting for the right-wing populists. In the 1920s, young people voted for the populists. If you look at who is voting for the populist parties today, young people are actually in the minority. Most young Europeans are very pro-Europe. Uh, they have a cosmopolitan outlook. They do want a European continent growing together. And they do not feel nationalist in the old sense. So, but what's driving this populism, this nationalism? Is it, is it a fear that traditional ways of life are under attack? Is it a in fear two, that immigrants in, are, in are coming in line? In 2005, the, uh, there was a vote around Europe for the constitution, uh, European constitution. Mm -hmm. And France and Netherlands voted against the constitution. And when you look at who voted against that in France, there was the extreme right-wing party and the extreme left-wing party. Mm -hmm against Europe for mm -hmm. different reasons. It's a mixture, mixture of things which made that a lot of people in Europe are against Europe or not kind of following the, the rules of Europe because they're scared about losing their identity, losing, uh, losing jobs, losing plenty of things, losing the, the power of their country. Right or wrong, that's a, that's a different thing. But, uh, but there's definitely a strong movement in France against Europe and against the, uh, the way Europe is run. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting perspectives on the European political news people are talking about in France from Patrick Vidal, in Italy from Nina Bernardo, and in Germany from Fabian Reuger. From an American perspective, I'm wondering about the future of, of Europe as a, as a union. Britain leaves the EU. Does that mean that Europe is 20% smaller but maybe more cohesive and may workable? Is this the beginning of the unraveling of Europe? Or is this just a wake-up call that Europe needs to recognize why Britain left and then reform itself so more people will be enthusiastic about staying? Uh, Fabian? I think it's going to be either of those three. It's, no one, of course, can say which one it is going to be. Uh, personally, I hope it's going to be a wake-up call and Europe will sit down and reform itself. And if you were the, the boss, uh, in a nutshell, how would you reform Europe so more pe it would work well for the remaining countries? I think the core problem right now is how the euro is constructed as a currency and we need to make the euro a currency that works for all Europeans and not just for the industrial powerhouses. Nina, if you think about Europe today, you're in Italy, which has a sort of a questionable economic uh, foundation. Of course, Greece, Portugal and Spain are, are the weak countries of the European Union. Where are we at with these countries in financial crisis? And, and do you think that's going to be in the news in the next few years? I think it's definitely going to be in the news in the next few years. But I also wanted to mention that right after Brexit happened, if you look at a lot of the polls, that's when there was the highest support for the European Union. So I think hmm. that was definitely a wake-up call. And I think it definitely showed that people don't want to leave the union. They want to reform the union. So I think what Fabian is saying is exactly true. Hopefully this is a wake-up call. What they need is their institutions to work better. And what voters in Europe need, maybe voters everywhere, is less extreme options, it seems like. In Scotland, the option was leave the UK or stay in the UK, and people were in the middle. We need to get out of a binary. It's not yeah, black it, and white. In Britain, it was leave the EU, EU or, or stay in the EU. It's the risk of a referendum. Huh? I mean, it's all very nice to govern with a referendum, but that's, it's yes or no. It's kind it? of a political cop-out because the politicians don't want to find a compromise, so they throw it to the people, and then it's black or white. Yeah. So you made a very complex 
problem a yes or no situation. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I've been trying to figure out nationalism, the rise of populism, and what's going on in the European Union. I've got three experts with me here, Fabian Reuger from Berlin, Nina Bernardo from Rome, and Patrick Vidal from Brittany in France. And i got to say, it is complicated. And it's been so great to talk to each of you. And there is no easy way to understand this or to get out of it or to know where we're going. But I do have a sense that there are divides. And when people comment on what's going on in America, we are a divided society. What's going on in Europe? I have a sense you are a divided society. I'd like you to finish just with a thought on divisions that you see within your society. Fabian Reuger from Germany. I think there seems to be a divide between life on the countryside and life in a modern cosmopolitan city. And people on the countryside have economically over the last 20, 30 years not fared very well, usually, which means they are asking, why is the system right now not giving me economic progress? And they look at the cities and they see a lot of immigrants there and they feel that something has disconnected them from the modern economic powerhouses, which is the urban space. And if you live in the urban space, you have neighbors from all sorts of countries, you are comfortable in this new cosmopolitan environment usually, and you don't understand the countryside at all. You feel that the countryside is now backwards because your modern life gives you a latte macchiato, uh, your modern life gives you a Romanian book trader and a neighbor from Nigeria, and you can become friends with them, and life has entirely changed. You go to have Thai food, and almost all the big cities in Europe offer these choices now, uh, but the countryside does not, and it does not understand that kind of life. Nina Bernardo from Italy. I think in Italy it's um, much more of a north-south divide, which has existed forever there, and the north being uh, much more cosmopolitan, closer to Europe even geographically, but it's also an income inequality divide. And so people who are wealthier, who have more access to things, tend to have a more cosmopolitan outlook. So I think income inequality is one of the big things that needs to be addressed in order to breach that divide and get people to talk to each other. People who are left behind it's easier for them to blame someone for their problems. Patrick from France. Education. Education is the big key of the, of the problem. I mean, uh, we were talking about the simple answer to a complex problem. I mean, if you can't understand and you can't analyze the, the, the complex problem, you won't find complex answers. You will answer or react to the simple solutions. And that's what is taking people to all those extreme parties. Patrick Vidal, Nina Bernardo, Fabian Reuger. Thank you very much for helping us try to understand this amazing time we're living in. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeley, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at National Public Radio for their help this week. You can find guest information, search the show archives, and listen again on demand. Take a look each week in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel, and his country, city, and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat, and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.